Allen back to pass, surveying the field. Fires to the end zone to Davis. Did he get both feet down? Touchdown, Buffalo! A 23-yard missile launch by Allen to Davis. 7.05 on a Monday, Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. We have a bunch of stuff we need to get to, including Mike Tannier, our NFL insider from Football Outsiders. I'll kick off hour two by telling you that hour two is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. You, Kintech, go. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Ooh, he card read good. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Guess what I'm wearing right now? Shoes? Kintech Orthotics. Oh, wow. Wow. In my Blundstones. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, uh, business at hand. We have a prize giveaway for the big game on Super Sunday. What February. game is this? <laughs> I, it, anything that legally keeps me from saying the words super and bowl together. Oh, didn't say them together. Yeah, that's it. We're good. Those are two totally separate things. You could have a super time at the Clayton Public House. Perhaps you could have a bowl of soup while there. See? You see how you do it? That's and how you, you would do it. have a bowl of cereal. Yeah. Several. But so, yes. Uh, each day this week, we are giving away a $50 gift card to the Clayton Public House and... Two reserved seats to join Sportsnet 650, hosted by Randeep Janda, to watch the big game on Super Sunday, February the 12th. The Clayton Public House, good food, good people, good times. Uh, To win the $50 gift card, Mm -hmm. send a what we learned in and put a football emoji. That's the American pigskin football. And Randeep has promised to chug a beer every time there's a touchdown scored. True story. He committed to it. So, again, if you want to win, we're going to be giving them away all week. WWL is the hashtag 650-650 is the text line. What did you learn over the last 72 hours in sports? Let us know and put a football emoji in your text. All right, business done. Time to get to the National Football League with our NFL insider from Football Outsiders, Mike Tannier, here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, as a credentialed media member, I'm allowed to say Super Bowl. We can talk about the Super Bowl. I'm attending the Super Bowl. And I think now that you're out of the ad read, you're allowed to say Super Bowl as well. So let's celebrate our ability to say the word Super Bowl. It is. It's very empowering that I can now say (laughs) Super Bowl at the top of my lungs. I want to scream it from the hills. Uh, I'll be very curious to see who ends up in this Super Bowl. We actually don't even have our full divisional round set yet because tonight it's the Buccaneers and the Broncos or Buccaneers and Cowboys for the final spot. But There was a lot that went on this weekend, Mike. We are going to skip right over the Seahawks because we've got another guest coming up that can handle all that part, and we've got about a million other games to get into. So I'm not even sure where to start, but I think I want to go to the Buffalo Bills because we played the audio coming back from break, and I was reading the walkthrough this morning on footballoutsiders.com. Everyone check it out. (laughs) All it says is, were the Buffalo Bills kink-shamed? I'm just going to let you This is Mike's writing. Were the Buffalo Bills kink-shamed? Mike, please explain to our listeners what the hell you're talking about. I I, I think the Bills have a habit of sort of, like, hurting themselves on purpose, uh, that they kind of enjoy that. 
I'll let I folks it. read it because I don't know how much how much the good folks at Clayton Public House want me getting into this sort of thing. But uh, you know, the Bills self-destruct on purpose in these games, almost as if they get their jollies from doing that. And that's what we saw a little bit of on Sunday in that they take a 17-0 lead. They look like they're in complete control of that game. And then Josh Allen just has to throw interception bombs. He just has to. Okay, and so the, the Dolphins come back, and but then the Buffalo Bills come back because they're so much better as a team. And then what happens? Josh Allen just starts throwing nothing but bombs. It's like he's malfunctioning. It's like the entire offense is malfunctioning. The only play call that can come out is bomb, 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 bomb. When you've got a 10-point lead late, and if you run the ball, run some options, throw a couple screens, you probably run the clock out. So it turns into this unnecessary, dis- near-disaster game for the Buffalo Bills. And it's weird because I think I've seen it 10 times before this season, and I think they kind of like it that way. All joking aside, <laughs> why does it happen like this? Why why do, why do are they kind of insisting upon playing? Is it irresponsibly? Was that, is that a good word to put it? Why are they insisting yeah. on playing this way? I believe Josh Allen is Josh Allen. Offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey thinks, with some justification, why do anything else except have Josh, Josh Allen launch the ball downfield because he's so good at it and you're going to get touchdowns and, you know, they win games like that. And the answer is that game management is real. You know, just because your quarterback can throw a lot of bombs doesn't mean you should try it 15 times with a lead. Doesn't, you know, there is a real logic for saying, Hey, the threat of the Josh Allen bomb means that Singletary can run. Cook can run. Allen can run the read option. You can throw underneath. You've got Cole Beasley again. You can do that. You've got Dawson Knox. Uh, It's not actually, statistically, logically, analytically, a great idea to just keep launching hero balls. But Ken Dorsey likes it. Josh Allen's not going to say no to another chance to launch it deep. And you keep getting results like this where it's the fourth quarter and you're saying, why aren't the Bills just up seven by 17 points like they're supposed to be? Why won't they run the ball? And then eventually they do run the ball and they, they usually get the win. Josh Allen was sacked seven times and had three turnovers yesterday. That's yeah. tied for the most combined sacks and turnovers by a QB in a win in the playoffs since the 1970 merger. Now, guess who the guy that Josh Allen tied is? It's Joe Burrow, everybody, who also <laughs> had a lot of similarities to Allen yesterday and that they came in as heavy favorites against the Baltimore Ravens, the Cincinnati Bengals did, and they squeaked out a victory thanks to an unbelievable uh, defensive play. Curious to get your thoughts on this one. I know you wrote about it for the walkthrough. It was a win, much like the Bills' win was a win, but it was hardly impressive. Um, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on what comes next now, because obviously the Bengals and the Bills are going to meet one another in the playoffs. The Bengals' offensive line is banged up. Burrow got sacked a lot yesterday. Uh, Handicap this one for us, because it is a very engaging matchup without glossing over too much what the Bengals did yesterday against the Ravens. Uh, right. And, and, you know, after the Bills game, I'm like, man, this team is in trouble because they're so self-destructive. They, they're so dis- And then I watched the Bengals like, my goodness, they're self-destructive, too. They're facing, you know, Tyler Huntley at quarterback, and yet they're leaving like Mark Andrews, the one guy he throws to wide open down the field. And they're missing tackles and Joe Burrow's getting pressured nonstop. And the big problem, the, the Bills can solve their problem by just playing normal ball. Just play normal ball. Stop playing NFL blitz, and the Bills are probably just fine against every opponent except the Chiefs and whoever they face in the Super Bowl. Bengals have a problem in that left tackle Jonah Williams got hurt yesterday. It does not look good. The prognosis does not look good. Right tackle L. Collins a couple of weeks ago got hurt. He, I don't think he's coming back anytime soon. All of a sudden, their, their offensive line is thin. All the guys who kind of stunk last year are back 
because they're the backups now, and the Bengals have this rickety offensive line. So the Bills have problems they can solve by just being a little more normal and a little bit more uh, calm and, and patient. The Bengals might have problems they can't solve. This is looking like a very, very good matchup for the Buffalo Bills heading into this playoff game. Okay, guys, so I, I have to admit something right now. Uh, Saturday, I watched the Seahawks lose to the 49ers, and I also watched the Vancouver Canucks lose to the Florida Panthers. And then I saw that the L.A. Chargers were blowing out the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I said, you know what? That's enough sports for me. I'm going to put my phone away. And I'm going to watch a movie. And you know what? I watched Seven because my girlfriend hadn't seen that movie. So we watched that movie. It scared the hell out of her. But I missed one hell of a comeback by the Jacksonville Jaguars. Please explain to me how that happened, Mike, because I believe uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars had a minus five turnover differential. And they managed to win the game. How, how, how did that happen? Is that the most Chargers loss of all time? I feel like it's a little like seven where there's like just this twist at the end. That, you know, the, the, <laughs> the Chargers were being manipulated the whole time into losing. And, and, it's, and it's hard to say exactly what happened, except that these things happen by degrees, little by little. And, and it's like uh, death by paper cuts. Mistake here, mistake there. Blown opportunity here, blown opportunity there. Chargers settle for a field goal, they get it. They settle for another field goal, they miss it. Um, there's all these uh, circumstances at the end of the game where you look at that team and say, can somebody get a bucket? You know, like basketball fans will say, go get a, go, go get a bucket. You got that one superstar, go get it. Justin Herbert could not get that bucket. Joey Bosa could not get that bucket. Cleo Mack could not get that bucket. Every time there was a chance, one play, one first down, one big gain, one sack, one turnover, whatever it takes – changes the outcome of this game and just and just uh, puts the puts the Jaguars on the mat for good that did not happen consistently did not happen Brandon Staley got out coached by Doug Peterson Trevor Lawrence overcame his early game meltdown level jitters and the absolute improbable absolute improbable happened I stayed awake for it I was not going to sleep on that game I learned my lesson from Bill's Vikings a few weeks ago uh I know this is the most obvious question on the planet, but I got to ask it. Does Brandon Staley, what he did in the final week of the regular season, playing a bunch of his starters, getting Mike Williams injured in a mean nothing game, and then collapsing after being up 27 in the playoffs, uh, is, are these dismissible offenses? I, they definitely deserve the meeting and the conversation and, and, and the shouting. And, uh, you know, I would not be surprised. I would not, I would not blame ownership there for firing Brandon Staley for it. At the very least, you put guardrails on him at this point. I don't think Joe Lombardi did a good job this year. There's probably some sacrificial pawns that have to be made for Staley. We're bringing in a different coordinator. He's going to answer to us and not to you. But you're right. It's that it, Williams would have made the difference in that game. Like I said, one first down or two. You know, one play where he goes up and catches a pass that Donald Parnum uh, cannot catch or uh, Bandy or whoever it was could not catch. And that's the difference. He's not there. I don't think Brandon Staley is a good big picture coach. I don't think he really has like these great long-term philosophies and plans. One little thing goes wrong. He reacts instead of acts. He's impetuous in that way. I don't think he's a very good coach. That said, we'll see. The teams have a habit of waiting a year, waiting two years to make the decision, especially after they just reach the playoffs. Uh, I have a question about the Minnesota Vikings playbook. Is it the same as the Tennessee Titans? playbook because that looked that last play the throw on what was it fourth and eight season on the line yeah that throw that Kirk Cousins made which was you know underneath and 
Yeah. The receiver was tackled and the game was over. Looked exactly the same as the way the Tennessee Titans went out against <laughs> Jacksonville in the final week of the season. I was like, "Are we? Is that a popular play? It feels like a dumb play, but it's happened twice in the last couple of weeks." Here's the thing: the Titans had no healthy wide receivers and a third-string quarterback who'd been with the team yes, two weeks. They had a good and excuse. Vikings have Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, and Kirk Cousins. And that really wasn't a play call. That was a Kirk Cousins decision. All the times we rip Kirk Cousins and people and, and like people on the internet, ho, 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 Kirk Cousins. And then the counter-argument is, well, look at his statistics. he got 4,000 yards. You know, he's eighth in passing and tenth in DVOA. He's pretty good. And, yeah, he, he does a lot of things well, obviously. That was the Kirk Cousins experience. Look at the play call. You can look at my, my walkthrough. You can see a dot diagram of the play call. Jefferson's going deep. He's double covered. Osborne is going deep. He is open on this play. He's got like a quarter of a step, but it's fourth and eight. You have to make the quarter of a step throw. This, the decision was Cousins to throw to a blanketed guy six yards in front of the sticks because he was feeling the pass rush too much and didn't care that that throw in front of the sticks ended the season. He still threw it. That's why Kirk Cousins is who he is. That's why he has been getting ripped mercilessly for the last five to 11 years on the Internet. Uh, speaking of decisions at end of games on fourth down, that was the case in the Miami Buffalo game. As we circle back on this one, one of the big stories was uh, Miami's clock management or lack thereof at the end of the game. Now, I suppose there's a baked in excuse that you've got Skylar Thompson doing the best that he can under tough circumstances. Mike McDaniel tried to kind of explain what happened there, but uh, at the end of the day, it does feel like a huge opportunity squandered because uh, even though the Dolphins were huge underdogs and the Bills kind of gave them a chance back into that game, there was a real chance there to go out and win that one if they could convert on fourth and one, and instead they have the gap. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this because watching it play out in real time, it looked like the kind of confusion and dysfunction you just don't expect from a professional football team, especially at that stage of the game. Right, right, and you have a rookie coach and you have a rookie quarterback, and it just got very strange. And the t- the two two of the three timeouts, that were squandered uh, beforehand. Uh, again, I, I think McDaniel thought he was a college basketball coach. He's looking at, oh, I don't like the way the defenses line up. I'm just going to call a timeout. You can't do that when you're trailing by three. He shouldn't know that. He's been on an NFL sideline. It's like, no, you need to keep enough timeout so you can get your field goal unit out there, so you can do something like what happened in that game where it's like, oh, it's fourth and one. We have to get a perfect play out there. The other side of that is it is fourth and short. You run a sneak. You run a quarterback sneak. What Mike McDaniel should have been saying was into his headset, quarterback sneak, Skyler, it's on you. Go get it. Go. And then everybody will line up and go. We, if you look at the percentages, that's the best play. That's not what the Dolphins were doing. They were running guys in and out. Uh, you know, like, let's get a substitution going here. You, you, the, the camera cuts to McDaniel, and it sounds like he's, he's reciting war and peace into his headset. It was just a bad situation all around. And You, you know, again, it, it, they can come back from that. McDaniel can look at that and say, oops, I made all of those mistakes. It's a very, it's, it's, it's a very uh, forgivable, to that uh, degree, error, except that I don't know what the Dolphins are going to do next. No one knows what the Dolphins are going to go do next. Stephen Ross might want Jim Harbaugh. He might want Sean Payton. He might want Tom Brady. Who knows? That season ends, and it ends in a cloud of confusion for McDaniel and Tua and that team. Mike, I won't ask you about the Seahawks because our next guest is going to cover all things Seahawks, but I do want to ask you about the 49ers. Um, I wonder if we'll look back on that game against Seattle and say that was the perfect matchup for the 49ers because um, Brock Purdy got away with looking a little shaky in the first half. Mm -hmm. 
And you might have expected that, right? Like the rookie jitters. I don't think Brock Purdy a few months ago expected him to expected to be starting a, a big playoff game on a team that had Super Bowl aspirations. But he looked a little shaky, not disastrous, but a little shaky. And then he turned it around in the second half, and the 49ers really pulled away from the Seattle Seahawks. Do you think there's anything to that theory? Uh, a little bit. Like, for example, if Brock Purdy and the 49ers face the Cowboys, I think the Cowboys will get sacks, turnovers, and, and kind of melt him a little bit. Uh, if they face the Eagles in a couple of weeks, I think that Eagles defense with the, you know, 70 sacks, get sacks, turnovers, melt him a little bit. Uh, you know, if the 49ers make it to the Super Bowl and, and they face a team like the Bills, he'll melt. There'll be sacks, turnovers. Because that's, they're showing that the teams with these elite pass rushes are going to do that to him, make him look like a rookie, because the Seahawks did that a little bit. They just don't have the elite pass rush. All that said, if he faces the Buccaneers next week, the 49ers beat the Buccaneers 35-7. It could be more of the same. And, you know, crazier things could happen. They could face the Giants in a couple of weeks. It could be more of the same. So some teams should make Brock Purdy not expose him. That's a bad word for a seventh-round rookie. Make him look like the seventh-round rookie that he is. But there's a chance that things will keep lining up the 49ers' way. Uh, Mike, I know we're up against it for time, but i got to ask you one final thing. Now that their season is over, the Baltimore Ravens, that is, uh, where's Lamar Jackson playing football next year? Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, okay. They, they will franchise him, and uh, it, it, he is injured. I mean, like, everything you hear, he is injured. He has not been dogging it, et cetera. But he's not going to have very many other options right now because this season was lost. No other team is going to say, ooh, let's take a chance on this guy with a gimpy ankle after the way this season turned out. Mike, you're the best, <laughs> bud. Thanks a lot for doing this. We appreciate it. Enjoy the game tonight. And then when we do this again next Monday, we'll be talking about the AFC and NFC Championship matchup. So this is very good. Thanks, bud. You got it. Take care and enjoy your week. YouTube, thanks. That's Mike Tannier, our NFL insider from Football Outsiders here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Okay, let's set the table really quickly here because coming up, we got one of our favorites, Dave Softy Mahler from Seattle Sports Radio. He's going to join us to talk a lot of Seahawks and some Kraken coming up. Uh, real quick, I know that the Seahawks were huge underdogs going into San Francisco on Saturday. Um, it's funny because at the time of the game, and in the immediate aftermath, I was like, okay, they'll be the second-best team by a long shot. San Fran's a very loaded team, and they got blown out accordingly. Yeah. Then the rest of the weekend happened, and I was like, well, Miami sure went into Buffalo <laughs> severely undermanned, and they found a way to stay competitive. And Baltimore leaned on its defense and found a way to be competitive in a game where they were double-digit dogs against the Bengals. It didn't really change my outlook. It just sort of hammered home one thing. Uh, Seattle's defense is awful. Awful, awful. That was really bad. I know mm -hmm. Brock Purdy looks good. I and do. Gino made some mistakes, right? That fumble that he had yeah. when there was an opportunity to at least make it a three-point game, that was the game, right? And the Seahawks lost hope after that, and the 49ers pulled away. But you're right. The Seahawks, the Seahawks defense is the major problem yeah. with the team right now. Yeah. And I think it should be the main focus of the draft. Just think about this. They gave up 505 yards of offense to a seventh-round rookie quarterback. Who, I mean, he wasn't a passenger. Brock Purdy made up four of the touchdowns, three mm -hmm. in the air, one on the ground, threw for nearly 400 yards. And then when that wasn't happening, Christian McCaffrey ran for 120. Yeah, oh, and Debo Samuel had 135, basically doing whatever he wanted with his feet. How many tackles did the Seahawks miss? Too many, right? And we'll get into that with Dave Softy Mahler. Coming up next on the Halford and Bruff Show.
on Sportsnet 650. Look like they want to blitz. They do. Geno steps. Geno throws deep down the near side. He's got Metcalf. Metcalf. Touchdown. Seahawks. (laughs) Jimmy Ward tried to cover him. Forget about it. DK Metcalf down the left sideline. 731 on a Monday. Happy Monday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience a Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Hour two of the program, which is going to feature Dave Softy Mahler coming up next. Uh, hour two is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. That audio you heard coming back from break. Uh, happier times, eh, Laddie? That's how Laddie phrased it to me. Happier times in the Seahawks' eventual playoff loss to the 49ers over the weekend for at least a half. Looked like it might be interesting, but then the second half happened. Uh, I believe it was 25 unanswered points at one point for the Niners, and they ended up rolling with over 500 yards of offense, so not a good defensive performance at all from the Seahawks. Joining us now to break it all down, our good buddy from 93.3 KGR-FM in Seattle, Seattle Sports Radio, Dave Softy Mahler here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Softy. How are you? You know, I was feeling okay until I heard that highlight there, so thanks a lot. Sorry. I don't know. Outside, I... of, the, uh, outside of the voice of your producer, yeah. the uh, next voice I heard was uh, Steve Rabel calling that play, and then I just realized that that was as good as the weekend got. So as you're going through this exercise of watching the Seahawks, did you allow yourself when they actually got came back in that first half and had it really close going into the half, actually had the lead going into the half, did you yeah. allow yourself to think what if, or did you kind of think, well, there's still an entire second half to play and it feels like an inevitability that the United States Yeah, I mean, back. just for, you know, giggles, I thought, hey, this is, they got nothing to lose. They're up by one. What the hell? I mean, they've got to have some things go their way in the second half, but I think if you were a betting man, you would have run to the window and put everything you owned on the Niners minus the second half points, which I don't even know what that is, to be honest with you, or what it was. But, yeah, I mean, they they came out and scored on the very first drive of the second half, and the Seahawks fumbled on the very first drive of uh, the second half for them, and it was curtains at that point. I mean, Seattle opens the second half and goes fumble, punt, interception, and the Niners go touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. So it was pretty quick. It was actually pretty shocking, right, how fast this thing turned around uh, on the Seahawks in that second half. They were down 23-17 to 17, uh, with about three, two minutes on the clock at the end of the third quarter, and then they forced the fumble, and three minutes later the Niners are up by 14 points and the game is over. So it really was kind of a blitzkrieg in the, in the third quarter that just took them out and it took away any hope that they had. But, yeah, no, I mean, if you, if you were to give me a, um, you know, a, uh, a truth serum test at halftime, I, I probably would have told you, hey, this is fun, but I, I'd be shocked if the Hawks can wrap it up. Well, I think the key to the 49ers' success is the fact that they've got weapons on both sides of the ball. I think the yep. Seahawks have weapons on the offensive side of the ball. I thought Metcalf played really well in that game, and that was good to see. Um, you never know what you're going to get sometimes from DK Metcalf. But, yep. you know, with the 49ers, again, they're they're talented on both sides of the ball. And the Seahawks, we all know the defense is an issue. It's been an issue for a while now. Is that what the Seahawks should be focusing on 90% of their efforts when it comes to the upcoming draft? Yeah, but let me go back to your comment about the offense because you're right. They've got – I mean, it's obvious they've got 
you know, kind of the, you know, upfront weapons, the household name weapons, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Kenny Walker on offense, but they don't really have a real big time serious playmaker at tight end. I mean, Disley's banged up, obviously, so maybe it's a bit unfair, but they don't have a George Kittle, right, on that side. They don't have a great offensive line. Yeah. They got two rookies at tackle and Charles Cross and Abe Lucas and the interior of the offensive line, honestly, from right guard to left guard, could use a total makeover in free agency, and they don't have a number three wide receiver. I mean, they drafted D. Eskridge two years ago, and he's done nothing for this football team. So, And then Geno Smith. I mean, you know, what is what really is Geno Smith? Is he really an upper echelon quarterback, or is he just a guy whose numbers this year got him into the top five, top ten in most major categories? Is he the guy that you can ride to a championship? I don't think he is. I mean, I, I would bring him back anyway and draft somebody, but I, 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 I guess I would just say that the Seahawks still need a lot of help on the offensive side of the ball. Um, but on defense, you're right. Uh, they need a linebacker, if not two linebackers. They need uh, a defensive tackle. They need an edge rusher. Uh, they might need another corner. They might need another safety. Uh, there's no question that that football team needs help at every layer of the defense, and you saw that on Saturday. Have you heard any uh... – insider stuff coming out of the Seahawks that suggests that they may target a quarterback at some point in this draft. I'm not talking about going after CJ Stroud or Bryce Young, but maybe they take a guy in some of the later rounds. I think I'd be shocked if they didn't take a guy in the later rounds, at least uh, at some point in the draft. I mean, you got, you know, four picks in the top 53, 54, whatever it is after the Chargers lost yesterday. So I I just think that you're fools if you don't take a quarterback. Now, you might go sign somebody in free agency instead, but to just sit here and tell Seahawks fans, okay, your quarterback room is going to be Drew Locke and Geno Smith, and we're going to re-rack it and do it all over again, that doesn't work for me. And that doesn't work, I think, for Seahawks fans. And I don't think it works for John Schneider and Pete Carroll either. I, I think they know that they're limited at quarterback right now with what they have in that room. So whether it's signing somebody, whether it's drafting somebody, I'm here to tell you right now, I would be fairly stunned if there was not another name brought in to that quarterback room, uh, either in the draft or in free agency. Did how the rest of the weekend played out, and I know there's still a playoff game tonight, everybody, but yeah. how the rest of the play, weekend played out, did it alter your perceptions of the Seahawks 49ers game at all? Because all I got to say is that there were three huge dogs on the board right. going into this weekend, and two of them found a way to hang around and make their games close. That was Baltimore and Miami, of course. Right. And then every other game this weekend – was tight. Like, I know that the Chargers-Jacksonville game was weird, but it was a tight game at the end. I'm just wondering if anything that happened in the aftermath of the Seahawks game made you go back and reevaluate anything that you thought? No, because we all thought, at least I did, during the regular season that there's more parity now in the NFL than there's ever been. And I think that parity is playing out right now in the playoffs. I mean, you know, again, Jacksonville falls behind 27 nothing, and they find a way to beat the Chargers. Uh, I mean, Minnesota, you know, was uh, you know 13 and 14, and they lose to Daniel Jones and the Giants. The Dolphins with Skylar Thompson push Buffalo all the way to the limit, for God's sakes. The Ravens with Tyler Huntley, who, in, by the way, when he was in college, I thought was terrible. You know, couldn't throw, yeah. and now here he is. You know, one hail mary, you know, uh, a 
away from tying that game and going to overtime against Cincinnati. So I just think the parity that you're seeing in the NFL regular season is playing out right now in front of our very eyes in the playoffs. There, 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 there are two teams, and maybe even now just one, and that's Kansas City, by the way, who's got Jacksonville this weekend, who you could really call elite. Is Philadelphia elite? I don't know. Is Buffalo truly elite? I don't know. Is Cincinnati elite? I don't know. I think Kansas City is elite, but if they get pushed around by Jacksonville this weekend, then you don't have any elite teams in the NFL. So, yeah, guys, I just think this is a reflection of what the regular season has been all about. So as we put a bow on this Seahawks season, it's hard not to look at this. We talked about this last week, and there's a real sense of contentment if you're a fan. They got to nine wins, which was above a lot of prognostications. They made the playoffs somehow improbably, but they got in. Uh, it was Geno Smith was a feel-good story. The emergence yeah. of Kenneth Walker was great. There were a lot of positives on that front, and now they've got four. It's four of the first 52 picks in this draft. Also, another part of this contentment, and we talk about Schadenfreude all the time and laugh at how much we relish the act of doing it, but was watching what happened with the Denver Broncos and Russell Wilson. That's, oh, yeah. that's part of this season for the Seahawks, unquestionably, as shallow as it might be, like watching the trade work out in your favor and watching Russell Wilson have such a poor year in Denver. I mean, it was really part of the story. How much did you guys focus on that during the year? I got to imagine it was a fair bit. Yeah, it was huge, huge. And yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a giant reason why 2022 was a success. Seahawks make the playoffs with Geno Smith at quarterback and you end up with a top five pick in the draft because Russell Wilson stinks. And I don't think there's any reason for Hawk fans to feel bad about that at all or feel shallow about that. I mean, if you're, if you're playing the stock market and you're short in a stock, you're, you're hoping the stock goes down. You're hoping that other people lose money so you can make money. And that's exactly what this was. I mean, we were shorting the market in Denver, hoping the Broncos stink, hoping Russell Wilson fell apart so we could get as high a draft pick as possible. I mean, what do you think John Schneider was hoping for, for crying out loud? What do you think the, the Jets were hoping for when they traded Jamal Adams to the Seahawks a couple years ago? So I think it's great. Uh, you know, it, 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 it really gives the Seahawks a ton of flexibility uh, in this draft to go after and address a lot of needs and maybe get the turnaround started quicker than people thought you know we all thought at least some of us did there was going to be maybe a little bit of a visit to the basement of the nfc west and that that never came i mean they they, they walked down the stairs and and they saw the basement and said nah we don't want any part of that and they bounced right back up after going seven and 11 last year or seven and ten sorry with russell and they won nine games and made the damn playoffs. So, I, I, I mean, to me, the future is bright for the Seahawks if they can just find a way to fix some pieces here or there. Uh, there's no reason why this team should not take another step next season. So, Softy, uh, people are feeling good about the Seahawks right now. Obviously, yeah. Mariners fans. I'll tell you what else I'm feeling good about. Well, you hold on. Let, 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 let me just, let me just like lead you up to this. So, you yeah, got, yeah, you got yeah, the Seahawks. Yeah. Seahawks fans feeling good. The Mariners fans yeah. finally saw the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, the Huskies had, an, a, yeah. a, I think, a surprisingly good season, and and expectations for them next season are yeah. extremely high. But the Seattle Kraken, but but eight in a row, baby. Seattle Kraken. Did you ah. know that no NHL team in the history of the league has gone on a seven-game road trip and won all seven games until the Seattle Kraken? Is the city of Seattle ready to get very into the Kraken because the Mariners season yep. is over, the Seahawks season is over, the Husky season is over. Right. There's no basketball back in Seattle yet, so yep. it's all hockey right now. 
Yeah, we got about two and a half months until the Mariners get going for real. And it's an opportunity for them to own this town, no doubt. Uh, look, here's the thing, guys. What's happening right now is, is kind of silly, but in some ways it's expected because I feel like only in hockey is this type of stuff possible. Only in hockey is it possible for Vegas to make the Stanley Cup Finals as fast as they did. And only in hockey is it possible for the Kraken to go from one of the worst teams in the NHL in year one to one of the better teams in the NHL in year number two. So uh, I'll, I'll just toss that out there. But they are one win away from matching their win total from last year. And they got 40 games to do it <laughs> the rest of the way. Yeah. So the addition of Burakovsky has been unbelievable. Matty Beneers uh, getting his feet under him. The rookie from Michigan has been amazing. And then really on top of that, I think the biggest reason why they're winning games is because of a guy from your neck of the woods and Marty Jones. I mean, last year, uh, you know, with, uh, with uh, Grubauer, they just were never able to get their feet, you know, wet, and they were never able to get any consistency in the net. And Martin Jones has been unbelievable. He's been an absolute godsend for this hockey team. So I, I just close my eyes and wonder where they would be without Martin Jones, man, because he's been amazing for them. It's a really remarkable story. It's an eight-game winning streak in total. Seven of them came on the road. And if, you look, if you look at the scores yeah. – there was only one really close game. There was one 4-3 game. Everything else yep. they won by at least two or three. Yeah, and a in couple some shutouts case, in there for yeah. Martin Jones. And a, yeah, they're it, kicking people's butts. Yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. And, you know, I mean, the whole seven-game road you know, game road trip thing, I mean, I, I, I don't know how long that goes back. Obviously, they weren't having seven-game road swings when the league, you know, began with yeah. the original six, obviously, because there weren't enough teams to have a seven-game road <laughs> trip. But they've been doing it for a long time, right? 60, 70 yep. years, I guess. Yep. 50 years with, with these seven seven-game road trips, and the fact that they're the first team ever to pull that off is just wild. Uh, Softy, I know you got to go, so we'll let you go. Thanks for taking the time to do this today. We appreciate it. Enjoy the game today. It's a it's a matinee against the Tampa Bay Lightning, so another good test yeah. for the Kraken. we got the Cowboys and Buccaneers tonight. I like the Bucks, by the way, to upset Dallas. So do I. Nice pick. Go. Good job. Thanks for doing this, bud. We you appreciate guys, it. Bye. Yeah, see you. Bye. Uh, Dave Softy Mahler, KJR, KJR, Seattle Sports Radio. Here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. So on, on this, the Kraken, just for a second here, um, they have scored eight goals twice in their last five games. Against Chicago, the 8-5 win that they had on Saturday night, they scored on six of their first seven shots. Mm-hmm. I like I, some of this is totally unsustainable, right? Like their yeah, shooting percentage is. is egregiously. They're just high. on a heater. They're 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 playing well. You don't want to sit there and say they're it's all luck, but we see teams streak like this, and it, ha- yeah. it happens sometimes the in the NHL. The hilarious part with them is that they've they've hit two streaks at the exact same time. The shooting percentage is off the charts. Yes, and, and their goaltending is off the charts at the exact same moment. It's almost one of those snapshots in time. Marty Jones' like, overall save percentage is still below nine hundred. That's what I'm saying. He's like, just been really good yeah. of late. Because they go into, like, he was in, he had two wins on this road trip, 8-4 and 8-5, right? So, like, your, your, your goal is against and your save percentage is going to take a beating in those games. But, I mean, they don't care. He's winning, winning hockey games for them, right? So, let's reset the show a little bit. We started out um, remembering Gino Ojic, who passed away over the weekend. Just 52 years old, passed away of a heart attack. We all know that Gino's health has not been great. Uh, over the last decade or so. And there was a time of actually quite a number of years ago now that we thought we were going to lose Gino earlier. And he pulled through. Um, But fans right now are really missing Gino. 
and we got a text in from Brinsley. He said, I missed the first hour of Melissa Laser, so I'm sure most of it was dedicated to Gino, and yes, it was. But reflecting since I heard the news, Brinsley writes, I began to think about who were my favorite Canucks. As I searched my emotions and brain, I really came to the conclusion it was Gino. And then the next category being Pat Quinn, Marty Jelena, Pavel Burry, Harold Snap. So Brinsley is of that vintage where he watched those Canucks teams in the early 90s and probably late 80s too. And Brinsley writes, yeah, we loved the physical part back in the day, but more it was about Gino's love for the team during and post-career. And I think this is something that has been brought up time and time again this season. Um, we've seen Kevin Bieksa being honored. We've seen the Sedins being honored. And those guys loved being Canucks. Yep. And Gino loved being a Canuck too. And when um, we've been watching the highlights of Gino on TV or social media, I'm sure some of you went to YouTube when you heard the news about Gino and said, oh, I want to relive some of those memories. I tweeted out the time he scored on a penalty shot against Mike Vernon. And it wasn't the prettiest penalty shot you ever saw. Gino really fumbled the puck a couple of times. But he snapped a good shot past Mike Vernon. And the Pacific Coliseum went ballistic. They went nuts. His, and team, they his just, teammates went ballistic. His, of course they did. Yeah, yeah. Because they loved Gino. Now, the NHL has changed a lot since Gino played. Back in the day, um, it was largely accepted that each team had an enforcer or two or sometimes three because the philosophy at the time, even from the league, even from the headquarters, was the players police the league. Yep. Now that's different. Now um, the league would prefer to be the disciplinarian. They don't want vengeance being carried out on the ice, and part of that is for good reason. The Todd Bertuzzi incident mm -hmm. on Steve Moore. And also the understanding that fighting is, is not harmless. Believe it or not, you young people out there, there used to be a time out there that time back then that there was a honest to God belief that fighting was harmless. They used it all the time. Nobody gets hurt in a fight. We, of course, know so much more because we've seen the lives that some of these enforcers live after their days in the league are done. And we know oftentimes that the repeated concussions that they suffered playing the role of an enforcer um, really badly affects their lives. So we know that. And the league has just changed, right? The league has also changed for different reasons that you got to be able to play in order because teams are rolling four lines. Um, the league has never been closer in terms of parity that even the fourth line is important. And I don't want to take anything away from Gino because he actually could play, but he wasn't, you know, like he wasn't the best. I don't know if the, I, I think that era in, in, in hockey is over, but what you can still be in the modern NHL is a guy that absolutely loves to play for your team. That, that that plays for the fans, plays for teammates. You can still stick up for your teammates. You don't need to take 400 penalty minutes in order to do it, but you can still stick up for your teammates. And I think what we've seen this season is, uh, I'm going to use that word again, a juxtaposition 
when people remember guys like Kevin Bieksa and they remember Gino Ojic, and then they look at this current Canucks team and go, do these guys, do these guys care as much as Gino did, yeah, as man. Kevin Bieksa did? I think it's a good point. I think the point about being a good teammate is really important too because uh, that doesn't go out of style, and that doesn't get phased out of the game, and it's not a, a dinosaur mentality to be a good teammate and to be a guy that your teammates love and appreciate and want to go to battle with. Gino was that for his group. Bieksa was that for his group. Like You can look at the chronology mm-hmm. of it, right? Um, I always remember one thing about the bubble. When Tanev scored to beat Minnesota yep. in overtime, I remember the shots from the room. All those guys loved it. But all of them loved it even more because it was Tanev that got it, mm-hmm. right? And what it, what Dad was, got it. What was Tanev, right? He was <laughs> the toughest nails, would do anything to help his team win, and he did it a different way, right? He would put his body and play, put his body through stuff, and play with the kind of pain where everyone else in the room was like, "Man, if this guy's putting in that kind of shift to wear the jersey and to be a Canuck and to be our teammate, then I got to at least try and match it." And all, being a good teammate. And being a guy that your teammate loves comes in a lot of waves, different shapes, different forms. When Gino was on the ice, he was able to go out there and fight with reckless abandon. Sometimes two or three night, two or three times a night, because that's what the league was back then, mm-hmm. right? When Bieksa came along, it was a different version, but it was the same idea. Everyone that talks about Bieksa in hindsight, all his former teammates, how much they loved being his teammates, said they might have been the best teammate they ever had. And now you look at it and you say. It doesn't matter the current generation or the different style of play or the, the way that the league has gone in a different direction. There's some fundamentally core stuff about being successful. And a lot of that is, do you have guys that other guys want to go to war with and are going to say, I love that guy being my teammate? Now, for the record, we should point out that Quinn Hughes stuck up for Tanner Pearson with his comments about Tanner Pearson's injury. And it's kicked off an investigation. Really, if, if Quinn Hughes hadn't said that, I don't know if we'd be at this position. And the position we're at is we're hearing that the NHLPA is going to be involved in this. Um, Jim Rutherford wants to get all the parties together and have a conference call and figure out what happened here. And Jim Rutherford is going to meet the media today at 10 a.m. And we're going to carry right. that uh, press conference live. Um, Jim Rutherford talking about the Tanner Pearson situation. What happened? Where do we go from here? What is Tanner Pearson's current status? Was there a breakdown in communication? What is going on with the medical staff? Does the team, and I mean the players, have faith in this medical staff? Yeah. I heard some people push back on us even discussing this and saying, you can't blame Jim Rutherford or Patrick Alvin for you know, this. It's not their fault. They're not doctors. No, but they put the medical staff together. They changed uh, a lot of people. They brought in a lot of new staff. And why does it matter? Because if the players don't believe that they're getting the proper medical care, <laughs> that has a huge impact. Like this is the, this is their this is how they make a living with being healthy and with being athletes. And if they don't tr- have trust in the organization, in in the medical care that it provides. It is a massive issue. So just to kind of 
encapsulate everything that's going on this morning and why we said there was a million things we needed to get to. You've got the Tanner Pearson medical situation. Uh, he's already had multiple surgeries on his wrist, and it sounds, at least according to Jeff Merrick, Sportsnet's very own, that there's going to be at least one and possibly two more surgeries to correct whatever has gone wrong. So we're going to find out about all that this morning, 10 a.m., President of Hockey Ops for the Canucks, Jim Rutherford, is going to meet with the media. You can hear that right here on Sportsnet 650. You know what else you're going to hear on Sportsnet 650 today? A lot of talk about talk. That's Rick Tockett, who in all likelihood is going to be the next head coach of the Vancouver Canucks, replacing Bruce Boudreaux, who is still, as we know, currently employed as the head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. Those are just two of the stories. There's also a lot of memories that are going to be pouring in throughout the day Remembering Gino Ojic. Also, and I just am trying to get through everything here. We're as the Canucks, as it pertains to the Canucks, we are giving away a pair of tickets to go see the Canucks and the Lightning Wednesday night at Rogers Arena. If you would like to be entered into the grand prize draw to get those tickets, text us of what we learned. Hashtag it WWL. What did you learn over the last 72 hours in sports? Let us know. Put a ticket emoji into the text to be entered into the grand prize draw to see the Canucks and the Lightning on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, Rogers Arena. You can also get, as I continue to go along here, a $50 gift card to the Clayton Public House and a reserved seating table for two at our big game party. It's called the Big Football Party. The Big Football Game Party. (laughs) Just the Big Football Party on Super Sunday, February 12th. Uh, as mentioned, hosted by Randeep. The party will be super. The game will be football. So You'll have a bowl of a time. The location is the Clayton Public House. So if you want the Canucks tickets, use uh, a ticket emoji when you send in on what we learned. And if you want the um, $50 gift certificate to the big football party on Super Sunday, yes. use the football emoji. You can use them both on the same what we learned. And we'll read them at around 830 but coming up next, we're going to talk to Ian McIntyre about everything that's going on with the Vancouver Canucks. But we will start with Ian's memories of Gino Ojic. You're listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. At the Golden Ears Bridge, a vehicle hit the barrier northbound before midspan with the right and middle lane blocked. And two problems in Delta 